That'd be kind of crazy if I really dis- did disappear one Sunday, wouldn't it? Like, whoa, there, where'd he go? He's gone. What happened? Was that a trap door? Was that a trick? What happened? Where'd he go? Hey, uh, good morning. Hey, you know what? There really is no place that I would rather be than where I am right now. In this room, with you as people, his church, the body and bride of Christ, to praise his name and to, and to seek his face. I, I, I mean, it's some pretty crazy stuff that, that we're actually doing right now, though we, though we tend to forget. Like, like being in the presence of and listening to the voice of the one who who spoke this world into existence, who, who holds the oceans in his hands, who, 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 who breathes out stars, like this star right here. Right there it is. Y.V. Canis Majoris, right? That's like a huge star. I mean, look at the cross-section there. There's the sun, there's the Earth's orbit, right? That's how big that guy is. It's huge. Three quadrillion... 729 trillion earths would fit inside of that. Now, that's a huge number to get your brain around. So, so let me put it this way. You know, one quadrillion pennies would weigh three billion tons. And if you stacked up a quadrillion pennies on top of each other, all right, it would reach 986 million miles into the air. In other words, it would, it, a quadrillion pennies would reach to the sun and back 5.3 times. Brothers and sisters, B.Y. Canis Majoris is crazy big. And that is just one of the stars that our God breathed out of his mouth. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. David was right when he said in Psalm 145, great is the Lord, he's most worthy of praise. No one can measure his greatness. Great is the Lord, he is worthy of praise and no one can measure his greatness. Great is the Lord, he is worthy of praise and no one can measure his greatness. And you know what, I think it's a good thing every now and then to remind ourselves of the immeasurable greatness and majesty of the God whose presence we are in, whose name we just worshiped, and whose word we are about to hear. Amen? If you guys would stand, I want to read some scripture to you. We're just standing in honor of this star-breathing, ocean-holding God. You've heard these before, but hear them again. Hear them in your heart and soul. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. God uses it, uses Scripture to prepare and equip His people to do every good work. Hebrews 4.12, for the word of the Lord, word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. 
And then Peter writes, above all else, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May God bless the reading of his word. Father God, we humbly come into your presence. God, you are faithful. You are great. You are awesome, God. Your greatness we cannot fathom. How in the world did you breathe out a star so big and billions of them, God? God, you, you were, you are, and you always will be. You're before all things. You're over all things. You've never been confused, God. You've never been tired. You've never been weary. You never made a wrong turn. Everything you do is right. You are so good and so great and so big and so powerful and so full of grace and mercy that you allow us into your presence. God, I pray that we, that we come humbly, Lord. I pray that we come anxiously, knowing that any time your word is taught and read, Lord, that our spirit and soul can be touched. And God, help me to present this truth about your word in a way that honors you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you can be seated. Feel free to stand if you want. Join me. Hey, we're in our fourth weekend in our series a very important series about understanding the Bible, about understanding words that this ocean-holding, universe-creating, star-breathing God literally breathed out to us, to me and to you. And again, it's important for me to remind you of the two purposes for, for this series, my two goals. I'll start reading. There they go. Hey. They're doing a good job. Uh, to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates contrary to the onslaught of modern culture, that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. That's goal number one. Goal number two is the motivating courage challenge and inspire people to read the Bible like never before because it really is from God and because in the series, they'll be giving tools to equip them to understand and to apply the Bible better. Okay, here's a fact, and it's not really up for debate, but it's not a good fact. It's not an encouraging fact, but nevertheless, it's true. Fact. Many believers do not read God's Word, the Bible, on any type of regular basis. Now, why is that? Why do so many believers not read the Bible? I think, number one, it's, it, it's hard to understand. And I think, number two, they, they don't really believe it's from God. I mean, if I were to hand you an envelope this week with a letter in it, and you knew that it was from God, 100% sure. Now, I don't know how you know, but just you know. Hey, this letter is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And then this letter, God tells you about him, about life, about salvation, about to have a full and abundant life, and about a way to guarantee a future in a perfect world as opposed to a future in a not-so-perfect world, to say the least. If you had that letter and knew it was from God, would you open it up? Would you, would you read what it says? Again, goal number two is to motivate, encourage, challenge, and inspire people to read the Bible like never before because it really is from God. And because I want to give you some tools to help you understand it better. 
Now, week one, we talked about how the Bible is unique, accurate, supernatural, and transformational. In week two, we, we talked about the Bible's overriding theme, its main storyline, the coming of Christ. And, and last week, we talked about the canon of the Bible, well, two weeks ago, and about how we can be totally confident that the Bible we have contains the books that are supposed to be there, right? We can be confident that, hey, every book that's there is supposed to be there, and there's no book that is supposed to be there that's not there. And as I've said, if you want to review these messages, if you missed any of these messages, they're online on our Facebook podcast, Facebook Live, on our website. I will email you my notes. It could be kind of scary. I don't spell well, but you know, you'll be fine, all right? But there's still good stuff in it, all right? And I also have an information sheet on this table here listing some really great resources that will help you understand the Bible better. And I have a book to pass out. I passed out one two weeks ago. It's, uh, I think it's a great book. It's an easy read. Uh, uh, this book helped keep my faith once I got it, you know, because it helped me to be a believer that knew what I believed, to have an intelligent faith and not check my faith, at, check my brain at the door when I became a Christian. It's called what, Know Why You Believe by Paul E. Little. Anybody on this side of the room like this copy? All right. First hand up right there. You go, Hannah, girl. It's a good book. I'll pass out another one next week, all right? It's a really, 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 really good book. So today we're going to keep working on goal number one. And what is that goal? To look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates contrary to the onslaught of modern culture that the Bible is not just a book, it's not just ink on paper, that is the Word of God. And we're going to talk about a very exciting topic that you're just dying to hear the transmission of the text. Yeah, baby! Right? <laughs> right? That's ex- that sounds exciting, right? You know, man, that, that, that perked everybody up. You're nodding off. I was talking about grace or mercy or God's love, but now you're like, yeah, I'll, I'm dying for this. Okay, anyhow. <laughs> like, I'm not well. Like, like, how do we know that what we have is what Matthew, John, Paul, etc. wrote. Listen, the skeptics are out there in force in our universities, in books, internet, cable TV, attacking, attacking the text of the Bible that we are basing our life on and placing our hope in. Now, for example, Dan Brown and his fictional work, The Da Vinci Code, which he says, though it's fiction, it's, it's based on fact, writes, the Bible has evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions, History has never had a definitive version of the book. How, how does that statement make you feel? Or perhaps you've seen maybe advertised coming up on a, you know, on a cable uh, channel or on YouTube, a show about how the Bible has been corrupted. Right? Oh my gosh, our Bible is corrupted. All right? and what these people don't tell you is what they mean by corrupted. Uh, they don't tell you. What is meant by it? You see, basically, any variation or alteration of the text, even a spelling error, equals being corrupted. And now, one of the most well-known critics, I mean, he, he is the ultimate Bible critic guru. It, it, um, his name is uh, Bart Ehrman. I mean, this guy makes his rounds on TV, Good Morning America, YouTube, anybody that attacks the Bible, be it a modern critic, be it Islamic critics, right, is going to quote from Bart Ehrman. And in his book, Misquoting Jesus, Who Changed the Bible and Why, he says this, there are more 
differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. So how does that make you feel? And what if I told you that's true? There are more differences in our manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. But listen, it's not the whole truth. You see, there's much more to it than that. You see, sometimes a a partial truth can lead people to believe a whole lie. For example, when I was the pastor of a church in Georgia, I took several men and some students to the infamous gold club, a gentleman's club in downtown Atlanta. What do you think about that statement? What if I told you that statement was true? And it is. But it's not the whole truth. See, the whole truth is that the gold club got closed down. And Christian Church Buckhead had rented it out. And a bunch of gospel Mary churches went down to begin to help renovate that place. I was helping put drywall over some mirrors they had there. I understand that's exactly what the skeptics, biblical skeptics do. They only tell you part of the truth. And they tell it in such a skilled and deceptive way that many people believe the lie. Get it? Good. And you know what the skeptics are counting on? They're counting on our ignorance. On our what? On our ignorance. Because when the skeptics know more about this stuff than we do, we are extremely vulnerable. And for the most part, we're just sitting ducks to their attacks. And and, and then when you attach a few letters after their name, and they say things like there are more differences in the manuscripts in the Bible than there are words in, in the New Testament, it's pretty much game over. That's why we're doing this study, so that you and I can give an intelligent answer to the skeptics, so you and I can do what Peter said we must be able to do in 1 Peter 3.15, right? To be able to give a reason, a defense, right, for, hey, here's why I believe the stuff that that I believe. And and to be completely honest, as evidenced by the books up here, I, I was not prepared as I should have been for the series. And that's why I have been studying and studying and reading and reading and watching and listening, and it's been mind hurting, but also a whole lot of fun. Okay, let's do this. Now, since most of the attacks about the transmission of the text are against the New Testament, that's what we're going to focus on this morning. I mean, it makes sense, right, to defend what's being attacked. If something's not being attacked... Let's defend what is being attacked. And besides, the Old Testament was pretty much confirmed by the, uh, the Jewish people by the 4th century B.C. It was affirmed by Jesus and the apostles. And we saw in week one that fulfilled prophecy and pre-scientific knowledge also verify and confirm uh, the Old Testament. If you missed that, it's online. Again, you can check it out. Now, I think there's a very good reason for the modern-day critics of primary focus against the New Testament. Because they hate Jesus. They hate his gospel. Now, they're totally okay if we get to keep some of our nice stories. And and they're okay if we keep some of our our moral lessons. But it's not reliable. It's not from God. It's been corrupted. And therefore, it cannot carry 
any ultimate authority on our lives and certainly not any authority that we can impose on the lives of other people. That's why they attack it. Okay, buckle up. The transmission of the text. Step one. God breathed and the apostles wrote the New Testament documents. Okay, everybody still with me? Okay. Now they, now they wrote mid to late first century and a relatively short period of time in different locations and to different audiences. Now the originals, like what directly came from the pen of Paul or Matthew or John, are called autographs, and the autographs do not exist, right? We don't, we don't have them. Why? They're written on papyrus, you know, it's made from a plant. Um, it didn't last very long. They are probably handled a lot. And I also tend to think that if we had what was originally written by those guys, it'd probably be worship, right? I mean, they were worshiping bones of, I mean, John the Baptist had more bones than the, probably the whole, bones in the whole state of Georgia, right? That they were just, hey, this is his bone, let's worship his finger, right? So I think God said, hey, they would worship these things. Step two, and don't get too excited, the New Testament documents are copied. I understand they're copied a lot by a lot of different people in a lot of different places. I mean, they're copied in Egypt, they're copied in Europe, and Asia, and Syria, and in the Middle East, etc. And these early Christians of the first and second century, they were very bookish people. In fact, they popularized what is known as the Codex. The Codex, C-O-D-E-X. And this is not writing on scrolls like this scroll you'll see in this picture. That's an actual New Testament Greek scroll. This was actually writing on both sides of a piece of paper, and then binding it together, right? Like a book. It was cheaper. You could get more material in it. And understand, as they're copying this, there was no central human authority controlling this copying. And so as these manuscripts are copied, you would get what is called a variant. A variant. What's a variant? Well, Suppose you had a text that said this, Pastor Steve is wearing a sling. Then you had another text that said, Steve is wearing a sling. Did anybody catch the variant, right? right? One had pastor, the other did, and that's a variant. The text's different. Now, if you gather up all the, Old Testament, all the New Testament manuscripts that we have and compare the different texts, how many variants do you think we have? 1,000? 10,000? 100,000? Actually, there are somewhere around 400,000 variants between the different manuscripts. And that number can freak people out a little bit. Right? Anybody feeling freaked out? Are you kidding me? I mean, there's only 138,000 words in the entire Greek New Testament. I mean, like, Biblical critic Bart Armand said there's more differences than there are words. So does that mean that every word in the New Testament and the Bible is in question? And I'm saying that's exactly what the skeptics want you to think. But again, they're not being honest. They're only telling you part of the story like my gold club example. Listen, the truth is, listen, the truth is, is if these same skeptics treated all of the historical record like they treat the Bible in regards to transmission of the text, they would have to throw every bit of it out, 
Every bit of recorded history would have to be thrown out completely. Which they obviously haven't done and they never will do. And so, so here, here, here's how I, I want to unpack this conversation. I want to first talk about the, the uh, quantity of the text, like why we have so many, and then talk about the quality of the variants. I mean, the, the quantity of the variants and then quality of the variants, like, like okay, what kind of variants are out there? Again, why are there so many variants among manuscripts? And a manuscript is simply a, a handwritten copy. You know, th- th- this is not a manuscript, right? You know, a manuscript is a handwritten copy. And, and the reason for there being so many variants is because we have so many copies of manuscripts. Greek manuscripts, we have, and this is recently updated to this number, 5,000 856 Greek manuscripts. Some are large, some are small. Uh, the older ones tend to be smaller, which makes sense because uh, they would wear out with time. The average size is 450 pages. In total, we have 2.6 million pages of Greek text. Latin manuscripts, translations in the second century, uh, we have 10,000 of those. And then also in the second and third century, it was copied in, in other languages like Coptic, Syriac, Gothic. Did you know that was a language? Aramaic, Arabic, and Hebrew. We have anywhere from five to 10,000 there. So altogether, we have 20 to 25,000 handwritten manuscripts that we can look at and compare. And that's a really good thing. You, you see, we want as many manuscripts as possible. Okay, think of it this way. Yeah, suppose there's a, a text up there on the screen and there's only one person in the room and that one person copies it. And, and then we take that off the screen. And, and then you know, we come in, we weren't in the room and we look at that copy. How do we know they got it right? We don't. We only got one copy. Now it doesn't have any variance, right? Because there's, there's just one copy. But yet we have no confidence they got it right. But now imagine that there were 10 people in this room copying it, right? Then we come back in and we compare it and we go, oh, look at this right here. This copy, they missed the line, entire line. They must have been drifting, right? And, and, uh, but these other nine, these other nine got it. So you know what? These, these nine must have got it right. That must have been in the original. Oh, oh this, this one here as you compare it? Instead of the word town, they have the word tow, T-O-W. But all other nine have the word town. Then you go, you know what? We're pretty confident that original had, had, had the word town. Now, now what, if, what if you had 10,000 copies to compare? So, so do, do you see how our confidence in what is in the original gets greater and greater by having more copies to compare it with? But so does the number of variants, right? Because you have more people copying and more opportunities for differences. Okay, you tracking with me? Okay, here, here's the bottom line. A large number of variants is a result of having a large number of manuscripts, which is a very good thing. We should be very happy about that. Now I want to compare this large number of manuscripts that we have to what other classical Greek writers have. Okay, check this out. The average classical Greek writer has about 15 copies. And if you would stack that, those copies up, it'd be about four feet high. Okay, about four feet high. 
Do you know how high all the Greek manuscripts of New Testament would be if you stacked them up? Four and a half Empire State Buildings. One and a quarter miles. So, so we have a, a lot more manuscripts by a mile, or should I technically say 6,596 feet more. And our son, not, not only that, but the time gap between when the original was written and, and we have our, our first copy with the New Testament, it's so much smaller when compared to classical Greek and ancient writings. In summary, our number of copies is so much greater and the time gap is so much smaller. I stuck this chart in your outline, you know, and you can just see you take Homer and his Iliad, right? Written 800 BC, earliest copy, 400 BC. It's a gap of 400 years. But it, it wasn't until the 11th century that they actually had the first full copy, all right? And, and you can see how it compares with all the ancient Greek, Greek and Tacitus is a, a Roman historian. He, he chronicled the history of Rome. And you can see the New Testament there. I understand the classical Greek writer waits 500 years to get its first fragment. We, we get our first fragment within decades. And we get our first full copy within 225 years. Now the oldest manuscript we have is called P52. Um, Papyrus 52. It's from the Gospel of John. It is, was discovered in 1934. It's the size of a credit card. Here's a picture of it. And, 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 and up until the time it was discovered, you know, all, all the smart scholars were saying, guess what? You know, Gospel of John was written in the, uh, the late second century. Therefore, unless John was 290 years old, he, he, he never wrote it, right? So it's a forgery, right? That's what they said. And then here comes P52, and, 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 you know, five tons of critical German scholarship blew up in, with a thing the size of a, of a credit card. And it was a codex. It's written on both sides. On one side, you have John 18, 31 through 33. And the flip side, you have John 18, 37, 38. It's a codex. And it's been dated anywhere between the late 90s and the early 100s. I mean, think about that. I mean, the ink from John's pen Barely had time to dry before it was copied. Here's another really cool chart, you know. And what you have there, it may be hard to see, like in the very center to the right of that big, huge yellow dot, you can see, it's going to say, hey, here's when this document was written, and here's how long it took to get a copy. And you can see the New Testament, it takes decades. Others, it takes, it takes centuries, right? It takes, or some even a thousand years to get your first copy. And then the big yellow blob is how much we have, right? And just, it just compares it. But check this out. If, if somehow we were able to get, someone had a magic wand and we got rid of all our manuscripts, we still wouldn't lose the Bible. You know why? Because the early church fathers quoted it. And they were probably more long-winded than me. And they quote it, and they quote it, and quote it. We have over one million quotes for early church fathers, right? There's only 8,000 verses, right? Actually, there's only a few verses that they don't quote. And again, the reason we have so many variants is because we have so many manuscripts, and that's a very good thing. 
And the New Testament time gap blows away any competitor by centuries. And listen, here's the deal. If the skeptics, and believe me, they're out there, if they were, if they were intellectually honest, if they treated classical Greek writings and other historical writings the way they treat the Bible, they would throw them all out. But they don't, do they? I mean, don't expect these guys to show up on Discovery Channel or the History Channel or knock down the doors of universities and say, you know what, we need to throw out Plato and Aristotle and Homer's Iliad because it's not reliable. We can't trust it. It's not trustworthy. They're not going to do that. Don't wait for them to do that. Even though the biggest critic, Bert, Bart Ehrman, says the New Testament is the earliest attested document in all of antiquity. But they're not going to stop attacking the Bible because they have an agenda. They hate Jesus, they hate the gospel, they hate the church, and they hate the truth, and they're not letting up. Now let's talk about the quality of the variants. And let me say up front, this is important, that of the 400,000 variants, over 99% do not matter at all. And not one, not a single variant impacts any of the core doctrine of the Christian faith. Okay, that, that should be encouraging, right? Doesn't touch it. Doesn't touch it. Right? Here is a, here's a cool little, little, little graph. You can see spelling errors, untranslatable, meaning but not viable, meaningful and viable. You'll understand some of those in just a minute, right? This guy by Dan Wallace, um, pretty smart dude. He's on that, that sheet right there. He has a really great hour and a half lecture he did at Purdue University talking about uh, the Bible, how badly was it corrupted and going through this stuff. It's really great stuff. It's on that sheet there. You can check it out. But, but he, here's some of the, the major variants of, that make up that 99%. Something called a movable new, basically the Greek word N. Okay? And, it, 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 and, and you know, if a word is before a word that starts with the vowel, you put the new at the end of that word, kind of like we do N apple, right? Instead of A apple. Right, and, 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 and sometimes guess what they do? The news not there. It moved. Where'd it go? I don't know. It disappeared when I disappeared. Right? Okay, it's just gone. Okay, but the, but does that affect the meaning? If I say I ate a apple or an apple, you're like, wow, I have no idea what you did. Right? No, it, it does not affect the meaning. Word order, word order. Now, word order matters in English, right? For example, hey dad, will you drive me over to the church? As opposed to, hey, Dad, will you drive over me to the church, right? <laughs> I mean, one sounds a little bit dangerous, right? Okay, but in the Greek, word order doesn't really matter because it's, uh, it's, it's a highly inflected language. It has all kinds of verb and noun endings. It gets crazy. I actually found my, my little note card where I had all the different ways you could spell a word, you know. I looked at it. I have no idea what it means anymore. It's like, and I think, like, I actually knew that at one time really well. I got the Greek award. Wow, crazy. Okay, um, but for example, there are many different ways to say God loves Paul, right? You, God loves Paul. Paul loves God. Loves God, Paul. Loves Paul, God. God, Paul loves. Paul, God loves, right? And, and, and actually, Dan Wallace, in his video, talks about it. He went through and actually shows it. He, he did John loves Mary, and he came up with a thousand different ways in Greek, the word John loves Mary, that every time would be translated John loves Mary. 
Because what the deal is, is that as long as God is in the nominative case, right, it's the subject, you know, and, and as long as Paul is in the accusative case, it means that it's the subject of the verb love, it doesn't matter where it shows up in the sentence, right? It doesn't matter, okay? That accounts for a lot of the variance. But again, does that affect the meaning? Absolutely not. Spelling? Oh, my goodness. If I was a copyist, man, the variance would have been double, right? Seriously. Uh, uh, it, there, was, there, were, there was no, you know, um, standardized spelling. For example, the, the name John can be spelled with one N or two Ns, right? And anytime you have one N, then you have another one with two Ns, guess what you have? You have a, you have a variant, right? Bottom line, spelling, word order, word endings. Sometimes it would have the, the word the. It would say Mary. Some texts would say the Mary, right? It, it does like an article, right? That would be a variant. And again, the bottom line, spelling, word order, word endings, the movable new, right? Um, the Mary or just Mary, okay, make up about 94% of all variants. They're not meaningful and they're not viable. And then you have some that are meaningful, but they're not viable. In other words, it's not just a spelling error, but it's still not viable. Here's just one example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. One verse, one writer says, because the word gentle and horse are kind of spelled somewhat alike, right? And Paul's saying, hey, you know what? We were gentle among you. One manuscript said, we were horses among you, right? And that's like, okay, that's just nonsense. We, we, that's a mistake, right? We, we, we know Paul wasn't horses among you, right? And, and so that would be, hey, it, it's meaningful, right? It would change things, but it's not viable when we look at it. Does, does that make sense? All right. And that pretty much covers 99% of the 400,000 variants, which leaves 4,000 that are meaningful and viable. Now, if the skeptics know that, why, why do they keep throwing out that number 400,000 instead of saying 4,000? Why? Because they have what? They have an agenda. And they're going to push that agenda. And so, so we have 400 meaningful and viable variants. And that is why having a lot of manuscripts is a good thing, right? Because, you know, we say, we say, hey, what do most manuscripts say? What do the oldest manuscripts say? Right? It could be a slip of a pen. It could, they misalign. But listen, not one of these 4,000 meaningful and viable variants touch one doctrine of the Christian faith. They don't then why do the skeptics present it as, we have no idea what to believe? Can't, there's no conversion about Because they have an agenda. I got to tell you again, you got to know where they're coming from, right? They hate God, they hate the church, they hate Jesus, they hate the gospel, and they hate the truth. And they'll never stop attacking it because they do not want to bend their knee to Jesus. They will one day, but they don't want to bend it now. Okay, and so here, here's a representation uh, uh, of some of the variants that you're going to have that, that are meaningful and viable. And I'm gonna, we're just going to look at some really quick. And, and on the left side would be manuscripts that represent late manuscripts, right? Where the variants showed up. And on the right would be some of the older ones. You can see, then he commanded the disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. And in the older manuscripts, Jesus wasn't there. The word Jesus was added. And, and what scholars call this, they call this the expansion of piety. And later manuscripts, they would add Jesus, they would add Lord Jesus, they would add Christ, they would add that to the, the actual text, right? 
Now, does that affect the meaning in any way of the text? Absolutely not, right? It doesn't affect it in any way whatsoever. Here, here's the next one. Now, after, they, after that John was put in prison, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's in the later ones. And in, in the, in the older ones, you have preaching the gospel of God, right? That they added the kingdom. Now, now, now in, in, in Matthew, in the, the later ones, three times Matthew mentions the kingdom of the gospel of God. And what you have here, scholars call an, a harmonization of the text. They're like, well, you know, he had it in, it's in Matthew, so it, it, it probably ought to be here because it was somewhere else, right? They're trying to harmonize. Does, does that make sense? That's just what they're doing, right? Again, there's lots of variants like that. Again, it does not affect the meaning. Um, Let's skip the next slide and go to the, go to the next one. Because I skipped that one. And here's another um, one right here. A harmonization of the text. You know, um, in the newer manuscripts, I mean the older ones you have, and when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And then in the, the later ones, like, you know, 10th century, they added that it might be filled, which was spoken by the prophets. They divided my garments among them and my clothing... They cast lots. Again, another harmonization of the text because in the same, in the same manuscript, right, in John chapter 19, you have that being quoted. And again, they're just harmonizing. Hey, well, he said it in John. Why don't I put it in here? Again, it's truth. And again, it does not affect the meaning of the text. Um, here's another one, another example of a variant that is common. Um, you got these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips but their heart is far from me. That's the later manuscripts. The early manuscripts didn't have the first part. And, and, and what scribes tended to do is if an Old, pass, Old Testament passage is being quoted in the New, they're kind of like, hey, I want to finish the quote. <laughs> and, and so this is actually, he's actually finishing the quote in Isaiah uh, chapter 29, verse 13. They're like, hey, you know what? He, he didn't quote the whole thing. I, I, I think I, I like to quote that, right? Again, a common thing that'll be a variant. Again, it does not affect the meaning. But yet they're going to tell us we got all these issues. Okay, here's one here. You know, uh, the next one. And, and there's nothing to compare it to. It's just in the later manuscripts. It's when the guy was healed in John 5, the angel stirring the waters, right? Early manuscripts, it, it's just not there. Now, some of the early ones, it was like written off in the margins. They sometimes did that, like as commentary, trying to explain something. Like, hey, why did these people get there? And eventually made its way into its text. But it wasn't in, you know, it wasn't in the earliest manuscript. So it probably wasn't in the original. Now, now you may see it in footnotes because, hey, just in case, right? Hey, just in case, right? Um, and pretty much that's an overview of the, the kind of variants, right, that are meaningful and viable. But again, do they affect our faith? Do they affect core Christian doctrine? No. So, and here are the big three. Here are the big three. And the critics run to these big three all the time, right? Because they run to these big three and want you to think, okay, these, these three are here, therefore the whole Bible's this way. These three are unreliable, therefore the whole Bible's unreliable. And, 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 and uh, 1 John 5, 7 is the first of the big three. You can see early manuscripts, for there are three that testify. Ends there. Later manuscripts add, in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one. Okay? You know, uh, this, um, none of the early manuscripts have it. 
it's actually in less than 10% of any manuscript before the 10th century. And it was probably added. They, they, the scribe was wanting to reinforce the doctrine of the Trinity, right? You know, now we, we don't need this to have the doctrine of the Trinity. There's other places, right? But, but we can see that that's, that's when it happened. But again, does that in any way affect any of our doctrine? Absolutely not. But again, this is one they're going to run to. Like, wow, look at this. This is messed up. And, and then we have Mark 16. And this is the longest single variant. I'm not going to read that. That's what made it real small. <laughs> um, it, it's the longest single variant, right? Most are letters, words, or phrases. It, it's in some early manuscripts, but it's not in some of what are considered the best early manuscripts. It's, it, it's not in some of the early translations. It, it's probably added because Mark ends kind of abruptly. The women come to the tomb. It's empty, kind of freaked out, and boom, it's done, Right? Kind of abruptly. Uh, so where did they get this information from? You know, well, mostly from Matthew and Luke and Acts, right? The, the scribe probably imported it and, and, and put it in there, all right? Um, it probably was not in the original. Question, what do we lose if we lose Mark 16, 9 through 20? Nothing. Absolutely nothing, right? Except maybe snake handling because that's in there, right? You may, if you like to handle snakes in church, you may lose that. Right, because that's where people get the idea. I don't even like to look at a snake, let alone try to handle one of them suckers. All right. And and again, these are the big three. And and, and here's the next one. And this is one where it kind of, it affects not our head, it affects our heart. Right, because I I love this story. You know, the story of the woman caught in adultery. Right. Very likely not originally in John. Okay. And and this is where the stuff impacts our, our heart, right? You know, in the 10th century, it was found written in the margins. It wasn't until the 14th century that it actually made its way into a text. Sometimes it appears in other places in John. Sometimes it actually appears in the Gospel of Luke. So where did it come from? And how did it begin? And, and, and some scholars, and one guy named Bruce, Bruce Metzger, he's like, New Testament textual criticism is like his life. He tends to think that even though it was not in there, that it was a true story that was carried and passed down through the generations. But we just don't know. It doesn't mean we can't learn from it, but again, you're going to see this in italics, it's going to be footnotes, because it, you know, it may have happened, it, it may not have happened, but again, what do we lose? We don't lose, and, and do, do we lose anything if that wasn't originally penned from John? Absolutely not. And now I want to talk about you know, some more of the most difficult variants, but I can't because there are none. <laughs> That's pretty much it. I mean, you guys have seen some of the most difficult variants that people have to deal with. There are no others. You have passed the test. Well done, young Padawans, right? You did, you did well. And, and understand that these variants actually, stay with me, I, I know this is, they actually affirm the New Testament. Because you could not say what does not belong if you did not know what does belong, right? You could not say, hey, this is not legit if you did not know that. We know that's not legit because right here, this is legit. And here, again, this is important. Here's a list of all the doctrines impacted by all these variants. There it is. None. Zero. Zip. Nada. Not the deity of Christ, not the resurrection, not our salvation, not mercy, not, not, not God, not, not the Holy Spirit. Nothing is affected by it. 
And, and, and listen, even if we made all the wrong choices with these variants and chose all the wrong things, and we stuck in the angel stirring water, we, we had Paul being horses among them, you know, you know it's it still, right? It still would not affect what we believe, right? It wouldn't. Nothing would be impacted, which I believe is just an example of God preserving the text. I mean, it's crazy. Think about it. Thousands and thousands of manuscripts over, over decades and then centuries over different places, and there's hardly any difference. They're writing by hand. But they knew they were writing the Word of God, and they took such great care doing it. And check this out. During the last 150 years, we, we found 130 of the, of, of the most super old manuscripts. 2011, they found something from Mark they think may be older than P52. They're not really sure yet. But, but listen, all these old manuscripts they found, guess what? None of them revealed any new reading. They just confirmed the things we already figured out earlier. Understand, this is important. The Bible has been copied so much and so early that we cannot hide the original text. And we have a little extra that was not in there, right? I mean, if you're putting together a jigsaw puzzle, would you, a 10,000-piece jigsaw puzzle, would you rather have 10,100 pieces or 9,900 pieces? Right? Well, yeah. Hey, hey we, you know what? These are nice pieces. I, I like them. I like the color, but they don't fit the puzzle. I'll just put them off to the side. Let me put it this way, and we're about done. Suppose you have a fleet of 250 tractor trailers, 16 wheelers, and, and you go in to have all those 4,000 tires inspected. And the guy comes out, right, and tells you, hey, I inspected all your tires, and only three of them are flat. Would you freak out and say, oh, my gosh, all my tires are flat. I, I can't trust any of my tires. He's like, whoa, 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 calm down. I said, I checked all your tires. And just three of your tires are flat. If you can trust me with the flat ones, then you can trust me that the ones that I say are good are still good, right? God breathed it. The apostles wrote it down. Men copied it and copied it and copied it and copied it. And they copied it early. And we, you know, I'm really thankful for the study because I'm more confident than I was before. Like, this really is God's word. And if some critic says, hey, there's 4,000 variants. Yeah, I know that. And I know all about this. How's your new doing? <laughs> Mine's moving, right? Okay, I, I, I'd have fun, right? You know, this is from God. It's reliable. It, it's the most attested book in all of antiquity. And we should want to read it, right? I mean, this is from God to you. You know this stuff, so when you, when you especially young people going to college need to know this stuff because you're going to get hit with it. They're going to attack your faith, right? And they, the goal, they want to dethrone Christ and devalue the Bible, right? Because they hate Jesus. Know where they're coming from. They hate Jesus. They hate truth. They hate the gospel. They hate the church. They hate Christians, right? That's where they're coming from. And that's their motive in attacking it. But when you have some weapons, you go, well, really? How about this? How about this? You know, not one variant affects this book. God has preserved this book for you and I, and I want you all to have confidence in it. 
Have confidence in what God has given us and, and spend some time reading it. And don't let, we're going to sing a song leading into communion. And, and uh, it's a song, We Will Not Be Shaken. And uh, a lot of good stuff in that, right? In that song. But I'll tell you, right? If you're alive and breathing, right? Anybody, the world trying to shake your faith, <laughs> you know? Our circumstances trying to shake your faith, you know? If that word is true, we serve a pretty big God that breathes out stars, that holds oceans, that said he'll never leave you and never forsake you, that says he's preparing a home for you. So no matter what happens, the oceans may roar, the, uh, the mountains may shake, but we can rest in the power and the greatness of our God. And that's true because it's in his word. Would you stand and pray with me? God, we love you. We thank you for your word. Thank you for the confidence we can have in it. And God, right now, maybe he's just grateful. God, I thank you for all those scribes. <laughs> Man, they had calluses all in their fingers, Lord. Squinting their eyes, Lord, under candlelight. Making sure that us, 2,000 years later, could, could read your word and have your word touch and change and make a difference in our lives. And, and God, I pray we won't be shaken. No matter what we're facing, no matter what we're going through in our lives, that we'll rest and we'll trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.